Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. A tipping point for Ukraine, we get a grim report from the front lines. And Russia expert Fiona Hill tells me why this is so much more than just about Ukraine. Then, To Kill a Tiger, actor Dev Patel and director Nisha Pauja join me to discuss their chilling documentary on sexual violence in India. Plus, The New Yorker's Masha Gessen talks to Michelle Martin about the politics of memory. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. Ukraine is entering its second long, hard winter at war. In the wake of the stalled summer counteroffensive, troops are digging in for a frozen war of attrition, while Putin appears increasingly emboldened about Russia's prospects on the battlefield and beyond. President Zelensky's recent trip to Washington didn't yield the result he wanted, with the Senate deferring any vote on more aid until the new year. Correspondent Nick Payton Walsh has this report from the front lines showing just how grim things have gotten. And a warning, it is war and it can be disturbing to watch. This was where the billions were meant to spell a breakthrough, but where the counteroffensive was supposed to have kicked Russia to the sea this summer, now it is mud, death, deadlock and the remnants of American help vanishing. It's a notably different mood here, dark, frankly. In the summer, they were buoyed, feeling like they had the world at their back moving forwards. Now, it's slow, dangerous, and a real sense of, well, despair, to be honest. 40 Russian drones swarmed one Ukrainian trench here in a day. Down here, in this tiny basement, the rule is do not get seen. The other side are not so lucky. Two Russians spotted moving a load. They guide in a mortar strike. There are just so many Russians now. Usually more meat means more mints, the commander says. But sometimes their machine struggles to handle it. And sometimes they have success. Batteries die fast in the cold, and Russian jamming seems to damage them too. This is Orakhiv, whose streets reek of crushed lives, and how much horror Moscow is willing to bring to be seen to win. In the matter of months since we were here in the summer, how much more damage has been done? If you've stopped thinking about Ukraine, be sure Putin hasn't. At command, they watch a wasteland, tree lines now bare. The dead, the injured. It's unclear if Russia treats them differently. Another Ukrainian drone aims for a foxhole. What they've struggled with are the waves of Russian assaults. Dozens of Russian prisoners, well-trained and equipped, backed up by armor, who they say are given a mix of drugs. They show us this graphic video of a wounded Russian, his legs severed, seemingly high enough to smile through his fatal injuries. Still, they claim they have held hard-won ground, but at a huge cost. As we say in the army, he says, the counter-offensive was smooth on paper, but we forgot about the ditches. Colossal changes are taking place. They started making their own attack drones and outnumber ours. 
but they use them badly, like a kid's toy. They say a drone has hit a trench and blown up a gas heater. The silence, the wait for news, agony. Does it feel like the casualties are getting worse? Every casualty makes a difference, he says. It affects everyone's morale. It's very painful for me. Sergei, aged 48, was one of four Ukrainians to die in that area that day, and about 50 that week. They haven't had to really talk about losing in this war, but this is what it looks like. It's not just drones. This Russian video seems to show a new threat, gas. Caustic, flammable. The Ukrainians have had nine incidents on this front, killing one. Here are two survivors. At first I saw smoke. We ran out from the trench and the gas suddenly caught fire. The trench was in flames. This gas burns, blinds you, you can't breathe, shoots down your throat immediately. We didn't even have a second. You inhale it twice, then you fail to breathe. Medical reports confirm their poisoning, and a Ukrainian official told CNN a form of CS gas was being used. And there was injuries inside your mouth? Where? On my cheeks, everywhere, inside the mouth. My face is swollen and covered in red marks. It is an ugly, savage world, even on a TV screen. Where there seems little, Moscow won't do, but too much, the West won't. Nick Payton Walsh, incredible reporting there. A grim reality indeed, but President Zelensky still is projecting optimism. Talking about financial aid, we are working very hard on this, and I am certain that the United States of America will not betray us, and that on which we agreed in the United States will be fulfilled completely. Few know the stakes better than Fiona Hill, Russia expert who served on former President Trump's National Security Council, and she told me why Putin thinks that right now he has the winning ticket. We spoke recently. Fiona Hill, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Christiane. Great to be with you. So, Fiona Hill, if you were what you were before, uh, an advisor in the national security apparatus to the president, what would you be advising this president now about Ukraine and about fulfilling the pledges? Because the big picture, obviously, is President Biden and his allies uh, pledging to defend democracy on the Ukrainian battlefield and, quote, supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. Yeah, look, I mean, we're in the same kind of inflection point and at the same juncture as we were in World War II. Now, you know, if you kind of want to do a counterfactual and think back into history of uh, 
Pearl Harbor hadn't happened in 1941 and Japan's attack uh, hadn't brought the United States into the, uh, into the war, what the hell would everybody have done with Great Britain? Uh, would we have left uh, Churchill and uh, the UK out to dry? I mean, that's the kind of question uh, that we're being um, asked right now. Biden gets this, uh, the administration get this, a lot of people in Congress and the Senate, uh, irrespective of political party, get this. Obviously, in Europe, the same uh, thing is happening. But the focus in the United States, as in many other European countries, is really about domestic politics, about their own elections, their own constituencies. And we have to find a way of breaking through that logjam. Because right now, Vladimir Putin thinks that he's got the winning ticket here, the winning edge. And he is already, as we speak, sending out feelers uh, to try to uh, gauge whether the United States and European countries are ready to capitulate, give up Ukraine and actually push forward on negotiations. He's sending emissaries out. Um, uh, lots of people are getting approached now. Uh, Putin thinks that this is the propitious time for him uh, to basically uh, declare a ceasefire uh, and uh, basically to partition Ukraine. That's the moment that we're in. Okay, so that is really interesting. Uh, that's very interesting information. I hadn't realized that he was seriously, because up until now, we have heard that Putin doesn't want to negotiate. He just thinks time is on his side. But this is fascinating because... Well, I mean, he doesn't actually, in many respects, Christian, want to negotiate. Yeah. What he wants to do is to um, basically lay out the terms of Ukraine's surrender. Mm -hmm. So negotiation is a bit of a mis misnomer here. When he says, I'm ready to negotiate, he's, ready, uh, he's basically saying, are you ready to give it up? And we will negotiate those terms, my terms, which is not giving up Ukrainian territory. So we'll have a deterrence problem, you know, across uh, uh, the horizon here. Russia will ma maintain a major military force. It will replenish um, its uh, depleted stocks. And of course, you know, Putin thinks that he has an unlimited supply of manpower when he's pulling people out of jails and, you know, out of remote uh, areas of Russia. So this will be on Russia's terms. That's not a negotiation. That's a capitulation. And precisely, I'm glad you corrected me because I was going to then say he's got some willing, uh, I don't know what to call them, willing believers in the U.S. Congress. Uh, Senator J.D. Vance said that it is time now has. for... Yeah. Ukraine essentially to give up territory. Well, yes, and it's not just in the US Congress. You know, it's kind of globally at this point. I mean, now that we have this absolute disaster um, in the Middle East, a lot of people are saying, look, we've got to focus, you know, what's happening there. You know, we've already had two years or coming up to two years of this conflict in Ukraine. That's not the main issue anymore. Can I just ask you bluntly, do you think if this continues that Putin could win, Ukraine could lose, and if so, what does that mean for Europe and for the United States? Well, yes, to the first two points, of course. Um, and Putin, you know, a win for Putin doesn't matter how many, you know, men he's lost. Um, I mean, there's more than 300,000 Russian casualties, including people who have uh, died or been seriously injured. Putin doesn't care about that. That's be beside the point. He doesn't care about uh, the fact that he's had to distort his whole economy uh, to a war economy. You know, for now, uh, the Russian economy has adapted and is doing reasonably well over the long term, this is very detrimental to Putin, but he's not thinking about the long term. He thinks over the long term he will win. And right now, this is the tipping point where the United States and Ukraine and Europe, everybody loses and he turns everything to his advantage. Right now, that's what he's thinking. And so what does that do to all of us in the long term? I think that that actually, you know, shows uh, that the West um, is incapable uh, of uh, sticking um, to its ground and that there will be a deterrent effect 
uh, after this, and I, I want to explain that a moment. Putin will be emboldened. It doesn't mean he's necessarily going to send tanks into the Baltic states tomorrow. It's just that he will now know that the United States and West and, and NATO as well have no sticking power. He will turn around and say, we defeated NATO, not because NATO was directly involved in Ukraine, but because NATO member countries have been involved in supporting Ukraine. He always says, and he said before, when he threatens, he delivers, and the West promises much to partners and never delivers. And it will have a chilling effect on every ally of the United States and the West, Japan, South Korea. I mean, remember, North Korea is also involved in supporting uh, Putin here. So it'll be a win for North Korea and Iran, and it will bleed over into every other arena that we're concerned about at this moment. This will not solve a problem. It will just create a host of other problems. And American and Western leadership uh, will be greatly diminished by this. The entire effort of Europe and the United States has been to weaken Putin through sanctions, through all these things for the last many, many years, particularly since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But we're hearing, and you alluded to it, that the domestic economy is ramping up, that even uh, there's a construction boom, there are rising real estate prices. Mikhail Zigar, who is a uh, exiled writer, writes in the Washington Post, business leaders, officials and ordinary people tell me that the economy has stabilized, defying the Western sanctions that were once expected to have a devastating effect. Putin's regime, they say, looks more stable than at any other time in the past two years. The Soviet Union's Cold War isolation has not repeated itself. Putin's Russia can get many of the supplies it needs from China. So how worrying is that? Well, it's very worrying because, again, this is a short to, to medium term um, perspective. And Mikhail Zigar is absolutely right. I mean, one of the effects of sanctions and sanctioning Russian business people and oligarchs has been to make them bring all of their capital, you know, from outside in Europe and back into Russia or to um, basically put it into the Middle East, UAE, you know, for example. And as Putin would probably say, like the old quip goes over the longer term, we're all dead. He doesn't care about that. He cares about the short to medium term his own election next year in 2024, which seems like a pretty sure thing to be president again until at least 2036. Uh, so that's what he's playing for. And so Mikhail Zigar is right, uh, and many others are, to call the alarm here. The only way that Putin changes his mind is when he feels pressure from a very large number of actors, and that's not what he feels right now. There's no pressure coming from the Middle East. He's just been in uh, recent weeks in the UAE and Saudi Arabia. He doesn't feel any pressure from China. He's not feeling any pressure from other players in the world system to end this war. In fact, all the pressure is on the United States and on Europe, not on Russia at all. Putin doesn't get any scrutiny, rather, from his own uh, press. Mm -hmm. Um, he is basically scot-free right now, and that should be something that people should be contemplating. Every time that we step out there in a, such a kind of a critical way about American players, irrespective of our partisan position, we're handing, um, again, another opening to Vladimir Putin to mess about in our domestic politics. We've got Viktor Orban, the uh, prime minister of Hungary, messing out in, uh, about in our domestic politics as well. America has now become a playground for other interests in ways that we've not seen for a very long time in our political history. This should be a real concern for people thinking about how vulnerable and how fragile US politics and the US political system has become to outside interference. 
But I want to add one more layer on and ask you about what you yourself have written about the other war that has broken out that the U.S. is heavily involved in, of course, the war of Israel and Hamas. You have written... These could be global system-shifting wars, something like World War I and World War II, which reflected and produced major changes in the international order. In a sense, the Hamas attack on Israel was a kind of Pearl Harbor moment. It opened a second front. Yes, I mean, this is uh, obviously an attack um, on Israel, Hamas on October 7th. I just want to fill um, the record as just a, a little point of interest. October 7th is Vladimir Putin's birthday. Uh, this is just coincidental, but it's still, you know, worth uh, noting uh, this, that, um, you know, that when that date is reflected upon, there'll be all kinds of different dimensions uh, on it as well. I mean, it's very close to um, the whole anniversaries of Pearl Harbor in any case, because in many respects, you know, the United States is in jeopardy in three different arenas where many of the same players uh, are very active. And the whole perspective is one of a proxy war against the United States, against the United States as a global and regional hegemon. And we're really getting uh, seeing the United States uh, being uh, put in the spotlight by Russia, by China, obviously North Korea, Iran, uh, and many other countries as really being the cause of all of this turmoil. The United States is getting blamed for what's happening um, in Israel and Gaza just as much as it is um, in Ukraine. And there's now a push uh, by Russia and other countries you know, to uh, isolate the United States. The United States, I would suggest right now, is on the back foot here. And Putin um, is obviously uh, going to take every advantage of this, and so will China. This looks like a world with three major fires, two, you know, in fully combustible in Ukraine and in the Middle East, and one that's, you know, still simmering and smoldering, not simmer in a fire, but smoldering and looking, you know, kind of like it also uh, might be ignited in the Indo-Pacific region as well. And we have to keep an eye on all of these fronts at the same time. The United States global position is really challenged here. Gosh, I was gonna ask you, what is the antidote to this? And does the action by Congress uh, simply put the US in more danger? It does put the United States in more danger. I mean, if we want to have any kind of leadership and any role in shaping uh, the system that comes out and instead of Pax Americana, we get Pax Sinica. And this is done on you know, China's terms with, uh, with Russia you know, heavily involved. We'll have a very different world, one which will be much more difficult for the United States and the Western Alliance uh, to play in. There is a great desire you know, all around the world now for more say in uh, world affairs, uh, for having the United States taken down, uh, not seeing Russia weakened, uh, don't necessarily want to see China as the dominant power, but there's no real desire to see the United States on top. That unipolar moment for the United States is long gone. And this is you know, really uh, what we're seeing playing out here, uh, the last moments of this. And you know, the, the sad fact is it's not being fully recognized here in the United States or elsewhere. It's, again, one of those really pivotal moments. And, you know, if we want to step up, uh, this is the moment to do so. And if we want to then just see how this kind of plays out again, not necessarily to our benefit, then, uh, you know, if we just sort of sit back. Fiona Hill, thank you so much for putting that all out for everybody to hear. Thank you. Thanks, Christiane. Thank you for having me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. 
Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Now, our next guest has just won the prestigious Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought, but in a scaled-back ceremony after a very public spat. Author and staff writer at The New Yorker, Masha Gessen, faced backlash after comparing Gaza to Jewish ghettos in the Nazi era with an essay entitled In the Shadow of the Holocaust. Masha Gessen now joins Michelle Martin to discuss the difficulties of exercising critical thought at this time. Thanks, Christian. Masha Gessen, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you for having me. You know, you're a familiar face and voice here. You know, on this program, a lot of people are familiar with your work. Um, but there's one piece we wanted to talk about, a piece that many people may have seen by now. The title of your piece was In the Shadow of the Holocaust, How the Politics of Memory in Europe Obscures What We See in Israel and Gaza Today. You reflected on the politics of memory, which you said have become the policy of memory. So I just wanted to start by asking you, what are the politics of memory? What did you mean by that? So the piece was written as I was actually on my way into Ukraine to continue reporting on the war there. And uh, I started out reporting in Germany on the politics of memory there, then went through Poland, mentioned Poland a little bit, and wound up in Kiev. And what I'm writing about is the way in which uh, memory of the Holocaust is wielded to, uh, to put it very bluntly, to turn Israel into a forever victim uh, that is unassailable. And in the, at this particular moment, to turn off any criticism of its actions in Gaza. And you know, more profoundly, I think, not to just to silence criticism, but to really make it very difficult to see what is happening in Gaza. I take it your, your views of this didn't start with what's happening in Gaza. So how, did, how do you think this started? The particular case that I started with is the case of Germany, which, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, is the center, or at least one of the centers of this memory politics. And in Germany, over the last few years, yeah, it did not start yesterday, a whole machinery of anti-anti-Semitism bureaucracy has shown up. One of the precipitating factors is this um, uh, this resolution, and it sounds very obscure, but it's had a huge influence. Uh, so there's the, uh, rather not the resolution, but the definition of anti-Semitism that was written by the International 
Holocaust Remembrance Association, which is an, a non-governmental organization, and this definition has no legal force per se, but it is interpreted in such a way as to basically frame any criticism of the state of Israel, and importantly to my piece, any comparison of Israeli policies to those of the Nazis as a priori anti-Semitic. Mm. And this uh, and this definition of anti-Semitism is used by this anti-anti-Semitism bureaucracy in Germany to silence any criticism of Israel. Uh, and it's had a profound impact because the German state is so generous. So it funds all the culture, it funds so much of the media, it funds sort of all of this production. And basically anybody who is at all critical of Israel and disproportionately actually Jewish artists and writers and thinkers, okay. uh, because we care about Israel, uh, have been silenced by uh, by this definition. But it doesn't stop in Germany. I mean, this is actually a huge issue in the United States. One of the things you point out is that, you know, there have been efforts by governments to define anti-Semitism to make sure that they can, you know, address it when it exists through, you know, whatever means. And and you point out that this, you call, talk about this, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance came up with this definition. This was in 2016. It was adopted by dozens of EU states and the United States. One of the issues that it identifies is drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis. Why is that so important? And why do you take issue with that? Look, our entire post-Second World War uh, idea of how we protect people, how we protect human rights, how we protect people from crimes against humanity, that entire intellectual and legal framework is based on what came after the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. This is when the world said, never again. So, uh, in a sense, every time when we're looking at a country uh, at its human rights record and at the way it wages war, we're comparing it to the Holocaust. We're comparing it to the Nazis. Does this rise to the kind of crime, to the kind of violation that requires the world to intervene and protect people in the way that it failed to protect Jews during the Second World War? And so when, uh, with the support of the right-wing Israeli government, who's been in which has been in power for more years than I can count, this definition prevents that comparison. It basically positions Israel as being outside the framework of international humanitarian law mm. and outside the human rights uh, framework. That's why forbidding that comparison is such a grievous thing. You explain in the piece of you know, why Holocaust remembrance is so important to to Germany, and you know for for very good reasons. I mean, for very good reasons. Here's this line in particular that seems to have evoked a lot of backlash. You say that you were comparing Gaza to Jewish ghettos under the Nazis. You say, not like the Jewish ghetto in Venice or an inner city ghetto in America, but like a Jewish ghetto in an Eastern European country occupied by Nazi Germany. And we're off to the races. Right. So I obviously violated the letter of the IHRA definition. I, I directly compared mm -hmm. Israeli policy to the Nazis. Um, I'm not the first person to do it. I was about to receive the Hannah Arendt uh, Prize for Political Thought uh, 
which Hannah Arendt was one of the original people who really was sounding the alarm back in 1948, comparing the politics of and actions of some Israeli political parties to those of the Nazis. Um, and I think it is essential to make that comparison right now, mm. because if we're serious about never again, this is the moment to when people can still be saved in Gaza. Did you hesitate at all when you wrote those words? Did you anticipate a backlash, a negative reaction, anger, resentment, fury? Of course. I, I mean, as I said to the fact checkers when we were going through the piece, I said this is the moment when people throw their laptops across the room. Mm -hmm. uh, that line was the point of the piece. The other 7,500 words were making my argument. Um, mm. Of course, it's a huge uh, thing to make that comparison. Of course, it makes people upset. It should make people upset. We should be losing sleep every day because of what's happening in Gaza, because that comparison is valid. You know, one of the things about your piece that was so, I thought, profound and is frankly difficult to talk about in a sensitive way is that... Um, you spoke about the way it makes sort of Israel a permanent victim. And I just wondered if you would talk more about, about why you think that, sort of emphasizing the singularity of the experience and saying this only applies to Jewish people and the state of Israel, and why you feel that that's so kind of compromising of Israel and its own kind of moral agency. Would you, would you just say more about that? I think you put it beautifully. It is compromising of moral agency, uh, because when you are actively being a victim when you're in such extraordinary pain and this pain has indeed been passed on through generations uh how do you hold yourself to account morally mm -hmm. uh when uh and it, when, when when you're driven by the desire for to avenge your pain as israelis many israelis certainly not all israelis are uh, right now in gaza who is going to hold you to account? And if you if you're relieved of that responsibility because your people are a permanent victim, my people, in this case, are a permanent victim, uh, and if the world is not going to intervene and hold you to account, that creates a moral catastrophe. So the backlash. You were on your way to receive this prestigious Hannah Arendt Prize in Germany, and then a the foundation. Um, a foundation connected to the award called for it to be rescinded. The city withdrew the venue where the prize ceremony was scheduled to take place. The ceremony was suspended. It was scaled back. You did receive the award, but, you know, it, 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 I mean, frankly, let's just be honest. It's become kind of an international incident. Could you just tell us how you found out about all this? I was about to fly to Germany when I got an email from one of the organizers, uh, Actually, a Hannah Arendt scholar, uh, who's who's a member of the Hannah Arendt organization, which awards the prize, and the email was the subject line was "Be prepared," hmm. and uh, and she said the Heinrich Böll Foundation, which is not just a foundation that supports the prize; it's the biggest political foundation in Germany, and it is um, connected to the Green Party. It's it's the foundation of the Green Party, which is uh, which is the government party in um, in Germany right now. So, she said the Heinrich Böll Foundation has pulled out of the prize, mm -hmm. um, and 
And as a result, we've lost the venue, which was City Hall in the city of Bremen. So we'll hold the prize at, a, at an alternative venue. And then I thought for a minute about whether I should fly or not, and I flew. And by the time I got there, it was kind of an international scandal. And um, in the end, the, the prize ceremony was held uh, in, so instead of a dinner for four to 500 people at yeah. City Hall, there was there was a dozen people dining at a private house. And then the next day there was a prize ceremony, I, I kid you not, in like a fortified shed because we couldn't get another another venue. So here's what they said. There was an open letter calling for the award to be rescinded. They said, it is incomprehensible to us how a scholar as experienced as Masha Gessen, who has made such a great contribution to the critical analysis of Russian imperialism, can seriously equate Gaza with the Nazi extermination ghettos. For us, there is only one explanation, a deep-seated and fundamental negative prejudice against the Jewish state. This has nothing to do with political judgment in the sense of Hannah Arendt. Masha Gessen is free to hold such views. We have such discussions on many occasions these days, just as the critical assessment of Israeli politics is also a permanent part of our work as the DIG, but Masha Gessen's views should not be honored with an award that is intended to commem commemorate the Jewish philosopher, Hannah Arendt. That is, that is extraordinary. And in essence, they're calling you a descendant of Holocaust survivors, a Jewish thinker, a person who has been, you know, attacked by totalitarian governments before, whose family fled a totalitarian regime, basically they're calling you an anti-Semite. I mean, that's basically what it is. Yes, yeah? that is exactly what they're saying. Uh, and that is also part of what I was writing about in the piece, is that this anti-anti-Semitism bureaucracy is run by non-Jews, but, but the people that they uh, accuse of anti-Semitism are disproportionately Jews. Why do you think they have such alacrity around, you know, uh, policing speech in this way? I mean, it just, I'm just wondering why there is not more critical distance there. Because they claim, they claim that they are open to criticism of the Israeli government right. and its policies and its actions. So I guess I'm just sort of wondering, what, what do you make of this? I think fear is a huge element of it. Um, but I think I also have to say that uh, it's, I don't, I have doubts about how sincere they are in their mm -hmm. efforts to fight anti-Semitism. I think there are elements to this policy that are basically anti-Semitic. Hmm. Uh, this, uh, the targeting of Jews, the, um, the ease with which Jewish voices are silent, hmm. the, equate, the equating of Jews with the state of Israel, I think there's an argument to be made that that is in itself anti-Semitic. And it's no accident that uh, the party that has probably benefited most from this anti-Semitism anti-Semitism bureaucracy is the IFD, the far-right party. Uh, it rode into the political mainstream on this sort of anti-Semitism trump card. Uh, and again, this is not dissimilar to what we're uh, seeing in the United States right now. Uh, I don't think that Representative Stefanik is losing sleep over anti-Semitism, but she sure finds it convenient to target university presidents under the guise of fighting anti-Semitism. Why is there such enthusiasm for this kind of policing of, of speech? Because it would seem that to people who are targeted by this would, would, see, would draw the same comparison that you do. Uh, it takes a lot of 
time and intellectual energy to draw that comparison. And mm. people don't have time and intellectual energy when they're scared. Mm. And, you know, uh, Jews are actually scared. I think a lot of it is, you know, the, the aftermath of October 7th mm -hmm. has blinded people to the fate of others, which is what happens when people when people are scared. To see what happened in Israel and to have the Israeli government spin it as an anti-Semitic attack, when in fact it was an anti-Israeli attack, really makes people feel like um, like they're under attack. And so, uh, and, and so, you know, in that state, people just want to ban everything, stop everything, go along with whoever tells them that they're going to be able to punish the people responsible. Why did you think it's so important to draw the connection to what is happening in Gaza now? Well, what is happening in Gaza now is that people who have been effectively ghettoized for the last 17 years are being indiscriminately targeted, uh, killed, and starved. And this is probably, at this point, the strongest connection. You know, you may not realize that out of the 6 million Jews who died in the Holocaust, 1.3 million died of starvation and disease. Exactly what is being inflicted upon people in Gaza as a weapon of war right now. The biggest difference between Gaza and the Jewish ghetto in Nazi-occupied Europe is that most Gazans are still alive. There's still an opportunity for the world to stop in and stop, uh, step in and stop this. Do you think it's a genocide? What is happening in Gaza? Would you use that expression? I think there are some fine distinctions between genocide and ethnic cleansing, and I think that there are, um, there are valid arguments for using both terms. Um, but I think that it's it's incumbent on the world to either stop or prevent a genocide. But you do think it's ethnic cleansing? It is, at the very least, it's ethnic cleansing. There are those who would argue that however valid your critique, that at a time when Jews are in fact under attack in the United States and elsewhere, um, that, you know, for example, I don't know how, as, as we are speaking now, literally hundreds of Jewish institutions, schools, synagogues, et cetera, were the subject of bomb threats, you know, over the weekend. And there are those who would argue that however valid what it is that you're saying right now, at a time when Jewish people are under attack, it would have been better to to not say it. And I just, I, I know you've heard that, so I'd like to ask, what is your reaction to that? Look, I don't believe that we have to act like humans are stupid. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that we have to act as though we can only protect one population at a time. I really think that we're capable of protecting Jews in the United States and elsewhere from anti-Semitic attacks at the same time that we criticize the state of Israel and protect Palestinians in Gaza from an overwhelming military onslaught. Masha Guest, thank you so much for talking with us once again. Thank you for having me. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. 
And next, to India, where sexual violence against women makes the nation one of the most dangerous places on the planet to actually be female. But despite the stigma facing survivors, one family decided to pursue justice. A new documentary, To Kill a Tiger, follows the emotional journey of Ranjit and his wife, Jaganti, who take on the entrenched culture of their rural community after their 13-year-old daughter, who's been given the pseudonym Kiran, is the victim of a gang rape. कि शादी संबंधों की आड़ में रोज उसके साथ में बलात्कार हो क्या उसकी अपनी कोई जिंदगी नहीं होती है क्या उसकी कोई इच्छाएं नहीं होती है खाली मर्दों की वो कठपुतली बन के रहना चाह रही है हमें इस गांव के लड़कों को क्यों नहीं सिखाया जाना चाहिए कि भैया ये हिंसा है ये गलत है अगर दोबारा कोई करेगा तो हम मिलके आवाज उठाएंगे भले ही मेरा भाई क्यों ना हो I recently spoke with the director Nisha Pauja and the film's executive producer superstar actor Dev Patel and a warning of course this conversation has descriptions of sexual violence that may be difficult to hear Welcome to the program Dev Nisha I know you made the film you saw it and decided to get behind it and and really help promote it and and make it uh swim. So we um aired in the lead into you part of 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 the sensitization that you're talking about. Right. Basically a group of men in the village talking about this issue and this issue is, you know, crime, culture, violence against women sometimes talked about as honor crimes and and the rest. What was it that triggered your desire to get involved even though you haven't made the film um i mean i i had a very i was truly humbled by it as a piece of cinema and i i had a very visceral reaction to to the material i've spent most of my career working and traveling through india it's impossible to ignore the kind of cases of sexual violence you know against minors against women that flood the papers there every day um and the way nisha dealt with the subject the delicacy in which she kind of tackled it um i i i was i was humbled and truly moved so i'm here to amplify her voice and and did you also in a way want to you know the thing that she first thought she was talking about male masculinity uh and and you know the problems did you want to be part of that learning absolutely experience? i mean I, i feel like um you know we need male advocates as well yeah. in 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 issues like this and there's this amazing characters there's a great foundation this the Shrijan foundation and there's many men that go to these rural villages on the ground that are helping out but also this is a story about a father who's standing up against an entire system an entire village uh to to kind of defend uh, and 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 seek justice for his daughter and that's it's kind of a tiny miracle when you put it in that kind of context there it is extraordinary how the world's biggest democracy as it builds itself has also not managed to protect its girls and women. It's not an isolated case yeah. there. We're constantly reporting about rapes of young girls, rapes of women, rapes of female students, uh, you know, gang rapes and all the rest of it. And I wonder whether you think and particularly you getting involved in this as a, you know, mega star or your name is going to carry a lot of weight. Uh do you think that it will help raise awareness that that men in india should behave differently those who are inclined to be be violent and that those men who are inclined to actually fight the system on behalf of their mothers their sisters their daughters should be uh should be encouraged rather than discouraged i mean you hope so uh 
the truth is, I, I, you know, I don't know how much weight I really have out there, you know. So, you know, you know, the more success a story like this gets, the more exposure. People like yourself, in fact, giving us this mm -hmm. platform. I think, you know, we saw this with my first film, Slumdog. Yeah. It kind of, it, it was very close to never seeing the light of day. And, you know, it was, came under a lot of fire and was probably going to be squashed in India. Success made people turn their heads. Success created celebration, created change. Create exposure. Latika! Latika! So I feel, you know, I think if we as a collective globally can take notice of stories like this, it makes the people on the ground there, you know, uh, turn their heads as well. So, Nisha, tell me about the, the, the parents first. I mean, they seem to be really brave and determined people going against the entire culture, not just mm -hmm. taking a crime to, you know, try to have accountability, but they're going against their village, their culture, what's expected of them. You know, they're really exceptional, you know, and um, not just in terms of, like, the, the obstacles that they were dealing with and, you know, death threats and the community turning against them. Um, but the fact that they stood up, um, you know, that the community and that sort of ecosystem, you know, the, the way villages operate in India, uh, that it's, it's, it's about survival, right? Those are ecosystems that are, that are uh, based on survival. And they were ready to sacrifice. They were ready to sacrifice that for, for their daughter. Because uh, one of the activists says uh, in the film, a father fighting for his daughter in a rape case, quote, never happens. Yeah. So I want to play one of the clips that, that, that you've given us. And in this case, it's the parents talking to the local headman who's, who's adjudicating. And although, you know, it's called Ranjit's daughter, it is in this case mostly the mother who's talking. So we're going to play. I think they were being encouraged. I don't want to tell for the whole audience, but you can say mm -hmm. to have her marry her rapist. Correct. How common is that? Um, you know, in India, we don't know. We don't know what the, st the statistics are. We don't know how many cases actually end up, you know, uh, survivors have to, have to, are forced to marry their rapist. It is illegal in India. I mean, there are 20 countries around the world now that still have a marry your rapist law, if you can, if you can imagine. Um, so I'm not sure how common it is, but it definitely wasn't unusual in that community. It wasn't something that was um, shocking in that community. And I chose that clip to, because I thought it was, uh, you know, as a dramatic clip, the, the, you know, the guy was like, well, what's happened has happened. Mm. Now we've got to move on. Yeah. And you see this father with his head downcast, kind yeah. of, he's broken by society and poverty. You know, you're talking about survival yeah. and it's like, it's interesting when you think of these kind of marches for justice and stuff, but this is a story of, of
kind of mm -hmm. endearing resilience mm -hmm. and that achieves a huge feat. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, he's, he's, his head's down, but he's not broken. And mm -hmm. you'll see that as the, as the film progresses. Tell us a little bit about the father. What does he do? Who is he? Yeah. Um, well, he's, he's a farmer. And um, obviously, you know, very Im impoverished, impoverished farmer. Uh, he himself, interestingly enough, this was something that we didn't have time to get into in the film, and I don't, I don't even know if you know this, but he himself was raised by a single mother. So when he was, when he was a child, his father, um, his father left the family, and he grew up really respecting his mother. And I think, you know, part of his, um, part of the reason he doesn't discriminate um, is is rooted is rooted in, in the way he was raised. That's part of it. I think the other part is just that he is an exceptional human being that looks um, that was looking at the idea of justice for his daughter as something that was sort of a moral imperative for him. You know? And I was you know impressed by the mom as well. I yeah. mean I don't know is she educated? Is she literate? What does mm -hmm. she do? But she was the one saying you know no yeah. this is not right. Yeah yeah no mom mom is. Mum is fierce. Yeah, she really, provides the fire in that, for she, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. She's really, really fierce. She's very strong. Neither one of them is, is particularly educated. Um, she was uh, a day laborer. Now she's, now she's staying home and taking care of the kids. Um, and I don't know where her particular kind of fire comes from, but I, I think that was the, that was the extraordinary thing about, about making the film and the journey that they were on. Because you see, you know, how Ranjit wavers and, and vacillates as she does at the beginning. Kieran never did, but I think the reason they stayed the course in spite of all of the obstacles that were being thrown at them really had to do with the fact that they were, they were incredibly unified as a, as a family. Tell us a bit about Kieran. You know, you, you yeah. say um, that you would be remiss to bring up morality and not touch on the ethics of filming a survivor and mm. what's more, a child. What happened when you first heard about her? How did you decide to portray her? Because these aren't actors. Let's remember, this is a documentary about real people. Yeah. Um, I, when I first heard about it, you know, obviously I was mortified. And we had this, we had this very sort of intense discussion before, you know, before we were going to film with them about the way we were going to capture her. And at that time, we decided that we were, we were going to actually, you know, film her from behind, film hands, film her ribbons. Uh, we weren't going to... We weren't actually going to be filming her. And that was such an abstract, you know, because you, sometimes you make, in, when you're making a film, you make decisions in, in such an abstract kind of way. It's the intellect that's operating. And then you get into the field, you turn the camera on, and everything changes, you know? And so I think, I think what happened in, when we started to film was I felt, this is so strange, and it's so wrong. And what I'm doing is I'm actually in some way perpetuating the kind of prejudice that, that I'm critiquing, which is she's done something that is dishonorable, which we have mm -hmm. to, um, you know, which we have to hide, Or right? protect her yeah. from, or exactly, whatever. Exactly, yeah. yes. But it took so long for us to make the film. It was eight years, right? And by the time we were finished, she'd become an adult. And we asked her how she would feel about coming forward. So she said, let me watch the film. And she watched the film with, with her parents. And they were just, I think, really, really deeply moved and felt seen and heard and validated. And she was beaming and said, yes. And yet, and yet, part of the instructions to all of us are, do not use her face, her image, 
her real name outside the context of this film. Uh, that also has a lot to do with me not wanting to use her face or her image to market the film yeah. or, or to sell the film. You know, there's something about, about, about not using a survivor in sort of a capitalist you know, in a, in a capitalist no, way. No, I, I, so I understand that. That's, yeah. How did you find mm -hmm. the men in the village? Mm -hmm. How did you find um, their, you know, their willingness to, to talk about this, to think about this, to maybe change their minds about this issue? Mm -hmm. Resistance. You did? Absolutely. Resistance. Resistance. But, you know, I'll tell you what happened, Christiane. It was so fascinating. So, you know, they've lost the story. We, we actually, I, I went to India a few months ago and I did sort of stress test screenings um, of the film because, you know, we're going to be doing a big impact yeah. campaign um, on the ground in India with the film and, and Ranjit and, and Kiran, if, if she wants to join. Uh, and so one of the people that we showed the film to was the ward member. Mm -hmm. And the ward member is, you know, the person who is quite yeah. sort of, uh, I guess, in some way, you know, if, if the film has a real bad guy that we, that we meet, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's him. And um, the ward member saw the film and loved the film. And after watching it, said that he felt ashamed of himself. And he felt that, you know, the entire community needed to see the film in order to understand what they'd put, what they'd put the family through. Wow. Well, I mean, you can't ask for more than that yeah. in terms of impact of a film. Absolutely. Yeah. That's change happening on the ground. That's yeah. a tectonic plate shifting yeah. in the community. Yeah. So we need yeah. more men like that to be transformed, mm -hmm. you know, putting a mirror up to those guys. Mm -hmm. In the opening sequence, a narrator asked this question. The rate at which reports of violence against women keep coming in, it's time we ask ourselves, is there something fund fundamentally wrong with our country? I mean, that, again, is a very touchy thing to say because India is a very proud nation at the moment, especially. Mm -hmm. And... You know, what, there's a terrible statistic. Something like a rape is reported every, what is it, 20, 20 minutes? minutes. 20, yeah, I mean, that's a really horrifying statistic. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you feel you have an answer, you know, to that question? Whether we should, in fact, you know, is there something fundamentally wrong with the, with the country? Or do you think this is a... No, it's just too common in too many countries. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I mean... You know, maybe it's, it's there's something fundamentally wrong with our world, you know, that violence against, against women and sexual violence, rape, um, is so common, you know? I mean, one of the things that, that we keep talking about, and this is why, you know, working with, with Equality Now is so important, is because we recognize, um, we recognize that the fact that this is a global, you know, it's a, it's a global issue. I would say that, um, I would say that in India, um, I would say, it's, it's an epidemic, you know, I, I really And you can see, I mean, we're speaking in the midst of two wars in which sexual violence has been perpetrated on victims, whether mm -hmm. uh, uh, against, uh, you know, the women in, in Israel, against women in Ukraine. Um, and it's, it's really very, 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 you know, topical. Um, as I said, I mean, the cl your closing credits say, according to local activists, Kieran's 2018 victory encouraged other women and girls to seek justice. Are you seeing a kind of a groundswell? Um, yes and yes and no. You know, I mean, according to according to to what people told us after after she came forward, definitely. But I think the issue, you know, and and one person standing up is not going to change sort of a deeply, you know, misogynistic culture, which where that patriarchy and that misogyny is baked into every single system.
you know? So for me, the answer really lies in education and boys, you know, masculinity, changing the definition of, of masculinity. It's about raising our sons in, in a different way. And I want to just ask you a final question about a film. Here we are, you were in the newsroom. <laughs> I know, I was saying, I was having flashbacks here. I was like, where's the control room? But what, what's next for you? Uh, so I, I've just directed my first film, so I've been getting notes from this one. All right. Uh, it touches on some similar subject Does matter, it? actually. Um, uh, and I approach it in a very different way. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually, it's a Trojan horse packaged in a sort of action context, yeah. but, you know. Set in of, India? Set, set in a, yeah, kind of heightened India, yeah. And you're obviously of Indian heritage. Yeah. Do you feel compelled to tell stories about your, your home country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was in India during the time of the, the Delhi bus rape. And, uh, uh, you know, I was in a relationship with my co-star at the time, you know, uh, an Indian woman. I have friends there, my best friends, you know, family members still live out there. So I was, I was deeply affected uh, and watching kind of the kind of uproar that happened. Um, but it took such a heinous act for something to, 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 to really happen. Uh, but we need that to keep echoing. You know, we, we, need, we, need, we need this stories like this to keep kind of being anthems for change. Yeah, well, hopefully when people see this, To Kill a Tiger, that, that will happen. It takes, you know, it takes the, the pebble and the yeah, ripples yeah. and mm -hmm. all the rest of it. So, yeah. Nisha, Dev, thank you so much thank indeed. You thank you, us. thanks for having us. Anthems for change indeed, an inspiring story of one family's courage to speak out. That is it for now, but we want to leave you with these images of outer space getting into the festive spirit. Some 2,500 light years away, NASA calls it the Christmas tree cluster. It's definitely beginning to look a lot like Christmas out there. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.